Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is D, and welcome to episode 45 of the Benzo Free Podcast. Today's feature is a conversation with Dr. Christy Huff. And if you'd like to skip directly to that conversation, don't forget there is an episode index at the top of our show notes to make that a little bit easier for you. Do you ever wonder that the anxiety itself may not be the only problem? (laughs) But on top of all that, there's also the anxiety of the anxiety that is making things almost unbearable. Do you ever have fear of having fear of something? Are you anxious of being anxious in some situations? Or that the anxiety you feel long before an event triggers your symptoms even before you left home? The fear of the fear or the anxiety of having anxiety may sound redundant, but I think they are a lot more common than we realize. Some of you, I know, are already saying yes, now aren't you? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Let let me share a hypothetical example with you. You finally get up the nerve to go out to dinner with some friends. And you recall that the last time you went out to dinner, several months before your last wave, things didn't go well. You got anxious. You felt like you were trapped, like you were a caged animal. You even felt like everyone was watching you and judging you. You got jittery, restless, and your skin started to burn or itch, and and you became extremely sensitive to the light and sounds around you, or or perhaps you couldn't make a decision on what to order, and you got confused, and you had to run for the shelter of the restroom. And now, this event has become a thing. This embarrassing, stressful, frightening event is now stored eternally in your memory enough so that you never want to go out to dinner again. Even though your friends didn't really notice anything and tell you it was no big deal, to you, it was monumental and has created a new trigger deep inside you so much that even the mention of going out to dinner causes a cascade of symptoms. But now you've been invited out to dinner by your partner's boss and you really can't say no. It's still a week away, but every day the dread fills your mind and the symptoms increase, and you feel ridiculous. You've eaten out before. You used to do it all the time before benzos, but this time you just can't get past it. And now you're jittery, restless, hypersensitive, sleepless, and the burning skin or itchy skin or mass confusion has all returned. 
The bizarre thing is, you know it's not that big of a deal. But you can't get past it. This reaction isn't caused by the anxiety of the moment or the original fear. It's caused by the expectation. The fear of the fear. Or the anxiety of the anxiety. You are afraid of being anxious and what being anxious will result in. You are still at home, comfortable, safe, and yet the thought of what this experience might be has already triggered a significant wave. Now, if you feel you are the only one who has experienced this, don't worry, you're not. Many of us experience this type of event in benzo withdrawal. I'm an old pro at this practice. In fact, I think I'm a time-tested veteran, if you want to call it that. I can even get worked up about the fear of the fear of the fear. (laughs) The dreaded triple threat. Don't even try to get me to explain that one. I'm sharing this with you today as a reminder. The majority of our symptoms are triggered by fear, stress, and anxiety. Or at least escalated by these emotions. So that's why I talk so much about working on tools to manage those three things. You know, I still do this more often than I would like, but the good news is I recognize the pattern most of the time and I have tools to help ease its effects. Most of the time I can talk myself down and push through and and do the event anyway. It's not easy, but I know that it will get easier the more I do it. But you know what? It's also okay to say no. That it's too much for you now. That you're going to do this when you feel better, but right now is not the time. You know, if you are getting these double-decker fears or even triple-decker ones, you're, you're in good company, and it's okay. You will work through them. It's okay just to say, I'm anxious. It's just anxiety. It will come and it will go. And the less you try and fight it, the sooner it will start to ease. You're going to be okay. And you're going to get through this. Anyway, thanks for listening to me ramble again. (laughs) I appreciate it. But now I've got to run. I have a show to do. And, And no, I'm not anxious about it. You know, I was at the beginning, but I'm not anymore. In fact, I look forward to recording this podcast each week. The anxiety of recording a podcast, or even the anxiety of the anxiety of recording a podcast, is gone. In part because I've done it a few times, more than a few times, and and I know now that the fears were ill-founded. But most of all, I don't have the anxiety because... I'm talking to you. I know you. And I know you understand me and what I'm going through. Thanks for that. Today we have a slightly altered format again, which will include our introduction, Benzo story, and feature. But we will drop our mailbag today due to time constraints. Last week we had included our mailbag and not our Benzo story. This week it's the reverse. Confused? Yeah, me too. Oh well. 
Our feature today is conversation with Dr. Christy Huff, and this is part two of our two-part interview with the doctor. And before we move on, I do want to remind you that we still need feedback. As always, questions, comments, stories, suggestions, corrections, additions. This is your podcast, and the more content I can share from you, the more BenzoFree becomes a community it was designed to be. Visit our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback, or email us at podcast at benzofree.org. You can also comment directly on the podcast blog post itself for others to see. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And one last thing, the BenzoFree podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. If you're listening to this podcast on one of our providers, please leave feedback on that carrier. This helps new listeners find us. Okay, let's move on to our Benzo story. Today's story is from Heather in Minnesota. Heather writes, Thank you so much for this podcast. It helps me every day. On on bad mornings, I listen to episodes just to get out of bed. It just helps to hear the voice of someone who understands. I was prescribed one milligram of Ativan a year and a half ago when my mother died. Six months in, my doctor increased it to two milligrams a day. I had no idea it was addictive or how hard it would be to stop taking the drugs. Three months ago, when I tried to stop taking them, I was hit with the most spectacular and bizarre symptoms. Smell intolerance, light and sound intolerance, vertigo, and flu-like symptoms. I was a mess. I went to another doctor and told him I needed help. I feared the first doctor would cut me off if he knew my symptoms. Luckily, the second doctor knew a lot about benzo withdrawal and helped me put together a taper plan. I have been tapering for three months and am down to one milligram a day. I am so angry. I just went off this evil medication and I want to sue the doctor who prescribed it without explaining the side effects. It should be a law, like reading someone their Miranda rights, that doctors explain the withdrawal symptoms of benzos before prescribing them. But for now, I can't let myself get too angry at the why this happened and who to blame. Right now, I have to focus on positivity and progress. I am in the middle of withdrawal and struggling to work, but have found that working, exercising, and seeing friends in low-stress situations is the best thing for me. Right now, I am trying like hell to stay patient. I'm wondering how my last dose should be when I jump off completely. I, I know everyone is different, but is there any data or statistics on what dose people try to jump off? I've heard 0.5 milligrams, but wonder if some people go lower. Thanks so much, and keep up the great work. Thank you, Heather. and Thank you so much for sharing your story on the podcast. I, I completely understand your anger, frustration, and even hopelessness that this situation causes. And, and getting mad at those who did this to you is absolutely natural. And you have every right to feel that way. You are right that now is probably not the best time for anger. Anger is not a friend of healing and recovery. And 
I'm glad that you are putting it aside for now so you can focus on getting better. Of course, that can be easier said than done. As for having a law that requires doctors to warn us about these drugs, that would be what we call informed consent legislation. And there are several U.S. states working on that type of requirement right now, with Massachusetts leading the way. I'm involved with a team here in Colorado doing similar work. I'll put a link in our show notes with more info for those who are interested. In episode 42 of our podcast, which was part two of our series titled How to Taper from Benzos, I shared the last part of Heather's story, and we discussed how to determine when to jump from your last dose during your taper. Check out that episode if you want to learn more. 0.5 milligrams of diazepam, or Valium, is a very common jumping point, and Ashton even mentions that in her manual. One thing to keep in mind is that Ashton is referring to 0.5 milligrams of diazepam, or Valium, and not lorazepam, or Ativan. If you are tapering directly from lorazepam and you jumped from 0.5 milligrams, that would be equivalent to 5 milligrams of diazepam, since lorazepam is 10 times as potent as diazepam. And that would be a large jump at the end. Thus, according to the Ashton Manual, it might be best to continue your taper down to 0.1 milligrams of lorazepam before you jump. But like I said many times, that is a decision between you and your doctor, and I'm not providing any medical advice here at all. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us today, and I wish you the best with your taper. And please continue to focus on positivity and progress. You're doing great, and I'm sure you will be successful. Keep in touch. Thanks, Heather. And don't forget, we still need stories. Just go to our feedback form at benzofree.org slash feedback to share your story or send an email to podcast at benzofree.org. And now, on to our feature. Today, our feature is a conversation with Dr. Christy Huff. This is part two of our two-part conversation with Dr. Huff. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I advise you to go back and listen to that first. It will make a lot more sense. In part two of our conversation, Dr. Huff speaks about finding a doctor, her work with benzo advocacy, reporting adverse drug effects to the FDA, and so much more. I shared Dr. Huff's bio in part one, so if you want to hear that, please listen to that episode first. And now, without further delay, let's join our conversation already in progress. One of the things I face a lot with, um, oh, well, you know, you always have this disclaimer on there to work with your doctor and to make sure you taper under doctor supervision. And it's like, well, you know, I can't find a doctor or my doctor won't help me. What, what advice do you give? I know you talk to a lot of people in the Benson community. I've corresponded with so many. I, I get a lot of people on my show who say, well, I've been in a group with Dr. Huff or I've talked to Dr. Huff or she's emailed me. So you, you do amazing work. What, what do you tell to those patients who can't find a doctor to work with? Right. Well, that's, that's difficult. Um, I mean, I know from working at BIC, we have people writing in all the time looking for a doctor and we do keep a list of benzo-wise doctors, but it's, it's yeah. by no means adequate. So, um, you know, I always tell people at least try to look for 
for somebody. You do, you do need somebody that's going to supervise you uh, and renew your prescription. Yeah. Uh, I will say that you don't need a doctor that's, um, you know, a hundred percent benzo wise to run your taper. You just need somebody that's going to follow you and let you taper at your own pace. Um, and take as long as you need basically. So I, I think some people are just looking for that, that perfect doctor who knows everything about benzos and you're just not going to find that. Right. I, I, lo- I love that you said that. I try to always remind people that it's more important to have a doctor who will believe you work with you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in my own situation, it, it took me a while myself. So I, I completely empathize. I went to a couple of different doctors. The mm-hmm. initial prescriber basically told me you're not dependent on the medication. The, you're, you just yeah, are a, a basket mine case. You, mine too. <laughs> right. You have anxiety. You're, you're crazy. Yeah. And then I went to, a, I, I got desperate. I went to some random psychiatrist um, that, and she gave me a whole bunch of other medications, which I didn't take, but she also implied I was crazy, said it wasn't the Xanax. Um, so on my third attempt, I found a psychiatrist and he had never heard of the Ashton manual, but I brought it in yep. with me and he listened to me and he believed me. And that was that. So he helped me switch from Xanax to Valium. And, you know, he didn't, he made suggestions about dose reductions, but he let me take as long as I needed. And yeah. that was what I needed. So, you know, if you can find somebody like that, that's ideal. I, I had similar experience. I went to a few different ones and then went back to an, a doctor I used to go to in the mountains. And he said, you don't need to come off this. But I said, I want to, will you work with me? He said, yes, I will work with you. And he actually made me wait six months to taper, which I hated because, you know, I just wanted to get these damn things out of my system. Right. Um, but then, of course, in hindsight, I look back, I go, man, he was brilliant because my mental state was crap at that time. Right. And I probably wouldn't have made it. And he knew that. And he said, go work on develop tools. So I went and started meditation. I started yoga. I exercised. I did, you know, I got myself calm and understood and researched and read the action manual again and, mm-hmm. and, and did what I could. And then I came back and he said, okay, now you're ready. And then he worked with me every step of the way, even right. though he didn't believe maybe that we had to withdraw from benzos. He still worked with me. Right. And and that's what you need. Somebody who can, who is going to listen to you and yeah. work with you and be responsive. You know, if you develop symptoms and we need to slow down and be responsive to your needs. Um, I will say also that there's probably a decent proportion of the benzo community that are tapering without their doctor's knowledge. I, yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I can't officially recommend that. I'm just telling you that's what happens in practice because they're, they're afraid of um, how their doctor is going to react um, if I, they I, find yeah. out they're tapering. I, I agree. And I, I, I'm in the same boat. I can never recommend for somebody to taper without doctor supervision. And, and I, exactly. also, I also agree with it for the same reasons we were just talking about. Not only do you need somebody to develop the proper dosages, you know, to prescribe the proper dosages, but you also, we have so many problems like we were talking about with the chest pains and different things. Well, who are you going to go to with those problems? It's good to have somebody you can go to and say, hey, I'm feeling this. You know what I'm going through. Do you think this is this or not? And they can test and work with you. Um, right. Yeah. The, the nurse practitioner I go to now, she wasn't, she was prescribing um, benzos, you know, regularly. And, and this is one thing I try to remind people all the time is that 
she now, because I've been her patient for several years, is very restrictive in her prescribing now. She's mm-hmm. changed her prescribing practices along with two other doctors I've been to because I was their patient. Oh, that's great. And I think that's a great way for us to help start make a difference. If you go to the doctor and can't have one that actually listens to you, and that's the key thing, somebody who will listen to you and work with you. Right. But by seeing what you go through, I think sometimes that's the best that's the best message or the best way we can actually start to make this difference. Right. And that actually made me think of one other thing. So when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was, and I was in the middle of that Valium taper, I was Mm -hmm. terrified about how I was going to explain to all these other new physicians about what was going on with me. Um, And so I had my psychiatrist that was running my taper. I had him write me a letter and he basically just said, you know, Christy's been on this Valium taper for a, a few months now, and she's never abused the drug. She has, she's very sensitive withdrawal symptoms. And, you know, he, he even said, let her take her own generic dose of medication into the hospital and, you know, to make yeah. sure she stays on track with her taper. And so I, I thought that was a really good way for me to, um, to explain to my other physicians because oh, I had yeah. him advocating for me. I think that's a great idea. And it's, you know, um, and, and you're a physician yourself, but um, physicians sometimes do listen more to their peers right. sometimes than they, they do, do to the patients. I've got to tell you, when I've been explaining this um, mm-hmm. benzo debacle to other healthcare professionals, you know, that are take, taking care of me, they, they sort of get this look on their face, you know, like I'm coming from outer space. So. Really? Doesn't make so, any difference. So yeah, <laughs> so that, that it, it does to an extent, okay. but you there's still you know b- being a woman is another okay. whole another issue of yeah. um you're not quite taken quite as seriously. So I felt better just having that that letter so they could read it and say, hey, you know this is this is a real thing. Understand, understand. Let's let's morph a little bit into the um um being a benzo advocate and organizer as you've been for for a while now. Um, Let's talk about Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. You are on the board of directors for Benzodiazepine Information Coalition or BIC or BIC. I don't know what you guys prefer. I do know that there's no the before it. (laughs) That is right. Yeah, we vacillate, but I call it BIC. I think Janice calls it BIC, so we just go back and forth. Yeah, I think when I first talked to Janice, it was kind of, I started talking about BIC by saying the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, she right. said, that's not quite right. <laughs> and, so and I think Nicole wrote me back too and said, hey, we prefer it to be this. And it's like, okay. Um, how did you get involved with um, BIC? How did, how did that start for you? Yeah, so they actually, so they were born in August of 2016 and they approached me um, a couple of months later. I believe it was October and I had just had my second or maybe it was right after my first cancer surgery. Okay. Uh, they approached me about writing a letter about my experience with benzodiazepine withdrawal since I was a physician. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a blog for the website. And so that opened up the relationship. And I became involved in their um, Facebook group, which was called Bela at the time, Benzodiazepine Awareness and Legal Action, I believe. Okay. Interesting. Uh, and so... You know, I would, they would post things about getting involved in advocacy and things like that. And they approached me in April of 2017, one of, one of their other directors, 
uh, stepped down because you always need three. So they needed a third director. And so I stepped in and the rest is history. Oh, great. So maybe you can help um, explain a little bit to, to our audience. What is, what is BIC's vision or philosophy and what primary areas are, is your organization working on? Sure. So our mission statement is that we educate about the adverse effects of prescribed benzodiazepines. And what we're really about is um, advocating for that group of patients who were harmed by these drugs, experienced neurological damage um, just by taking them as prescribed. And we really have a multi pronged approach to this. I mean, first of all, we have our, our website, which is a great resource. Mm-hmm. Um, we publish blog content fairly regularly. There's a list of resources, including the Ashton Manual. Yes, and, and, the, and the new versions of it that you work Yes, we released a, a new version. Janice and Nicole worked really hard on that. Yeah, um, that's great. There's a PDF version on our website and also a Nook and a Kindle version that's available oh, on great. Amazon. Yeah. And so we're, we're also interested in, um, you know, dealing with the media. So we, we get Mm -hmm. a, um, a number of media interview requests. We actually participated very strongly in the, uh, the recent Lisa Ling episode uh, that was on CNN. How did that come Uh, together? Yeah. So they, they ended up approaching us. I forget exactly how that happened, but, um, Brooke Monk, who's on our advisory board, general advisory board, um, that's really her strong point mm-hmm. is um, dealing with the media and organizing things. So she did a really great job of working with them and finding them patients to be interviewed and, yeah. you know, helping out finding some of those uh, videos that were shown. So, and you, you can see that we, both Brooke and BIC got uh, mentioned in the credits at the end. Okay, great. So that was exciting. Yeah, that's wonderful. That that, that took, I, I thought I heard something like that took almost a year to put together. It did. It was, it, it took, yeah, that's, it's been about a year. Wow. Because Chrissy, Chrissy was still tapering and she and I actually jumped, I think, a day apart on our tapers. So. And she was in, she was in the, in the program. She was in the pro. Yeah, she was the second patient that they showed. Right. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm. I, I know it's people. I think don't always understand what it takes to go into that level of a of an interview for a national broadcast. So. Right. It. I can imagine it was. Uh, I think they filmed her for a couple of days, if I if I recall. Yeah. I mean, I know that when I was um, filmed for the NBC News a couple of years back, and they. They filmed me for four hours and I was just on for like a oh, minute no. and a half, something like that. <laughs> but they, they told me that going in, that you know, you're going to, they're we're going to film and film. And then when you see the actual news spot, you're going to be like, where is all that footage? I, I have to admit, that's when I first learned of BIC. Um, I was watching, I was watching the news one night and which back when I watched news, which I don't do much of anymore, but, um, and you were on there and I, I was, I was blown away to see somebody on a national news program talk about this problem. Um, and it just, I mean, I honestly broke down and started crying when I saw your interview. Oh, that's amazing that you found me that way. Well, yeah, because it was just one of those things that, um, you know, it's just, it's that validation. 
at, that we are, so many of us are so desperately seeking to say, yes, this is real. I'm experiencing it. Why won't you pay right. attention to me? Exactly. And that's why I did it. The only thing, we were sad about that episode because there was so much addiction talk, you know? I know there was. Yeah. But that, that, that's hard. That's hard to battle. We kind of are going to face that no matter where we go and we just have to work with it, right. I think, and work around and it. And that's with... what BIC is constantly, um, dealing with in the media and we we're very upfront whenever media we have a media request we we talk about the addiction versus dependence up front say hey are you gonna are you talking about addiction are you talking about dependence we we educate them and you know like we're we're not going to provide you patients if um if this is going to be a story about addiction yeah so we're very um we're sticklers for that because it's important It, it is important i was just um well just yesterday morning i was at a a health summit here in Denver um, at, at Denver University, and Dr. Wright was speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I love that he does is he gets invited a lot of place to speak on opioids. And when he gets invited, he says, yes, but I'd like to do a program on benzos too. <laughs> and I thought that's nice. So he always, so he had an opioid part he was talking on, then was also talking on benzos that morning. And I went and attended both of those. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like that, you know, certain physicians like yourself and him and others are making that clear differentiation between addiction and dependence. And, and saying that up front, I think is, is become a, a, a big help for so many of us. It's just going to take time, I think, for it to, to right, per- permeate through the medical community. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting because the, the FDA just put out a document. It was a draft document. They were asking for feedback. Okay. And um, it was talking about, drug labeling drug labeling and how they were going to make the the distinction between addiction and dependence and define those terms and define tolerance and withdrawal and BIC was able to actually it, it you know it was public anybody could provide feedback so we were able to provide feedback for that i haven't seen the the aftermath of that okay, yet that's but great that should be coming into play on as far as labeling labeling but, you know, the FDA is yeah. slow. We'll see how long that takes. Well, and, and speaking of the FDA, I noticed the, the, the new link on BIC's website, um, Reported Injury. Mm-hmm. And um, can you explain to the listeners um, what that is and why that's so important? Sure. Well, first of all, that link has always been there, but Janice okay. may have moved it potentially. I, mean, I think yeah. maybe, yeah. It's, it's, now, it's now on the top on the upper right, and it kind of highlighted. So it, it stuck out at me. I just hadn't seen it before, maybe. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think it, it kind of moves from time to time because we have to play with the website to see if we can get maximal yeah. interaction or, you know, to be more user friendly or whatnot. But so that's if you click on that, it will take you um, to a link for the FDA MedWatch program. And that's where you can go and report any adverse effect you've had to any prescription drug. And it's a really important thing to do because what they keep is this, this huge database of information mm-hmm. about these drugs and uh, you know if there's any patterns that they're seeing um, that will be flagged and uh, potentially further investigated um, and the other thing is um, you know even if that doesn't occur at some point um, we're going to reapproach the FDA about uh, stronger warning labels right. on these drugs and they can go back and look in that database full of information and, you know, figure out some of these patterns that are going on. So I encourage a lot of people ask what they can do for the benzo 
advocacy cause, mm-hmm. you know, what they could do to spread awareness. That's that's the first thing that we tell people to do is to file one of these reports. And and I'll say they're they're not too complicated to fill out. Some people are worried about, okay. you know, there's is their information safe? It's like, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. You, you actually don't have to even use your name. Um you know, it can it can be anonymous. Okay, good. And um and I know some people are cognitively impaired and have problems filing the report. And we're always available at BIC to help as somebody. I'm pretty familiar with the form. I've actually helped quite a few people file their forms. So okay. I, I'll be glad to help if people just want to contact me or we can find okay. somebody to help. Speaking of that, you um, you also were involved with Jay McCubrey on the survey, right? That was handled through BIC? Yes. How, how did that go and how's that going? Yes. Yeah, so I believe it was about a year ago, um, Jane designed a survey uh, to be given to the benzodiazepine withdrawal community. It was shared on Benzo Buddies and the Facebook groups and some other outside groups um, that dealt with mental health or anxiety. Um, and the survey was meant to um, assess benzodiazepine withdrawal symptoms and how long they last and also more importantly the um the life impact um, these things are happening so uh, we have some very preliminary data analysis done um i think we need to do some further data analysis as far as splitting these into groups and um, eventually the plan is to uh, publish some scientific papers okay that's great that sounds great. Yeah, I, th- I think getting the information out there, one of the things I noticed in one of your blog articles was you referenced um, two um, governmental articles that I had referenced too, and one was from the state of Pennsylvania and one was from New York City. Um, mm-hmm. I researched both those for my book also, and I was so glad to see those in your article too. And it's amazing to see that in a publication for like the state of Pennsylvania or for like the city, the largest city in the United States, New York City. The information's out there, but you know, when, when such a public health department releases it, we get so frustrated in the community um, as lay people. Why don't the doctors know this? Right. I agree. I think part of it is just because those are right now we don't have any standardized um, benzo prescribing or um, tapering guidelines. It's just it's all very right. regional or local. Uh, documents that have been published. So it's like those are only touching those communities. So it, we definitely need to get recommendations that are that are more widespread. Um, yeah. The New York City and the Pennsylvania guidelines are both really great, um, I think, uh, as far as prescribing guidelines, but they don't touch as much on... Um, safe tapering. No, no, they're more that's just something that's really lacking. You're right. They're more, more just covered the awareness that they should not be prescribed long-term, but they right. don't really t- tell us how to withdraw. And, and that seems to where we wind up back on the Ashton Manual again, as being the only really published document that covers that. And exactly. It's, and it's, you know, now the decade, <laughs> two decades old, depending on which version you're looking at. So It is. And then unfortunately, at least here in the U.S., many doctors aren't aware of it. I, I don't know if it's because it was done in the, the U.K. or and they just don't put any stock in that because it's from another country. I'm not I'm not really sure. But I'm not either, because it, it is amazing how many have never heard of it. And you mention it and 
usually right. the physician rolls their eyes at you. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I can say that I I never heard about it in my training. Right. Um, I mean, it, you'll you'll come across a doctor rarely that that knows exactly what it is, but and it's usually just because they've had a patient that they had a difficult time tapering them off benzos, and that's how they learned. Exactly, and that's like we talked about earlier. That seems to be a that's a way I think I think people in the community are making a difference is just by being a patient in benzo withdrawal and working with a physician. I I do think that's making a difference for a lot of people. I a lot of people I talk to say. You know, my physician wasn't on board at first, but now she is, you know, right, or something like right. that. And, and it's it's becoming, uh, think about the number of people that that change just helped out. How many exactly. other patients is that physician now helping? And who else is that physician telling? You know, it, that can really spread. That can make a difference, in my opinion. Oh, I definitely agree. Um. I'm going to, we're going to start wrapping this up here, um, sure. and I, I appreciate your time. This is, you've been very generous with it. You've been interviewed by many organizations about your experience with benzo withdrawal. Is there a specific question that you have not been asked or covered a topic that you'd like to talk about or answer? Sure. I, would, I feel like when I'm interviewed, a lot of the times I'm actually, um, depends on who I'm being interviewed by, but if it's somebody outside benzo world and I'm, I'm actually doing a lot of educating. Okay. Um, so, you know, beyond them asking me questions, I'm also educating about um, addiction versus dependence and also the um, potential for neurological damage from these drugs. And that's something that, you know, when the media is coming to us, they're, they're always thinking in terms of addiction and over prescribing, but yeah. really the neurological damage and, um, physical dependence, that's not really on their radar. Okay. So I do, I do wish that that was being more covered in the media, just how difficult the withdrawal can be and how severely yeah. some of the patients are affected. I mean, people are 100% disabled from this. It, it's, um, a, it's amazing. I think that's, you know, I, I come back to the term that I heard during my recovery, which is ineffable. And I didn't even know what it meant. I had to look it up. But, you know, it's something that we cannot explain. We can't. Right. It's, you know, you hear people that say who are Vietnam War vets, you know, who say you just don't know unless you've been there. And exactly. that's exactly, I think, how benzo withdrawal feels to a lot of us. It's like we can't explain this. Is, it takes so long. It's so debilitating at times for some people. And it just carries on. And, and your life changes. I mean, you've experienced so many life changes, I know through your experience. Yes, I have. And you're right. It is so very hard to explain. Like when you were having me explain earlier, like what my mornings were like, what my withdrawal symptoms were like. And it's like, yeah, there, there's just not, there's not enough words for it. There aren't. And I, I, I noticed that when I did, I interviewed my wife on the podcast. I was like, she wrote um, a chapter in my book um, for the caregiver. And mm -hmm. so I interviewed her one time. And one of the things we came up several times was as much as she went through with me for the last, you know, six years of my withdrawal plus the other 12 years on the drug, she still never knows exactly what it's like. And she's the one that told me that. She said, I sometimes forget you're still going through it. You know, I sometimes forget that. And then I see you get up and, and have to go run. Or I see you with your hand on the side of your face because of the spiders. Or I see you and it's like, and I'm reminded, oh yeah, you're still going through this. Right. Right. I know. And I some of a lot of this isn't visible, so it makes it hard. But yeah, I think my husband's been the 
the same. It's like, I just, I don't complain about my symptoms as much anymore because first, because I'm doing a little better and second, because like, you know, you get tired of complaining. You do. Um, Do you, do you feel like the, I use the term of bar was lowered and I don't mean this in a negative aspect, but do you feel like after you've been so low, like the days when you were bedridden, couldn't get out of the house and had to try to get your daughter ready and now things are improved. I try to relate to people that life looks pretty good right now because of where I've been. Yeah. Oh, definitely. definitely. Do you feel that way? I do. I'm, I'm still a little bit, I'm not quite as far out as you are. So okay. yeah. I'm still having some, some rough days here and there. Oh, I'm sure. But it's definitely, it's, I still have to remind myself like, okay, look back to this time at the end of your taper when you were just, literally felt like you were dying and couldn't get out of the bed. Like you're, you're doing so much better. So even, even though I still feel pretty bad on some days, um, you know, you're right. It is all relative. So, but I'm still in the, I guess the phase where I have to remind myself how far I've come. Exactly. And I, and I get that a lot. And I talk to a lot of people that are always struggling with that aspect. And I don't know if you get this a lot, but I get a lot of people that ask me, um, when will I be a hundred percent healed? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, yes, I get that all the time. <laughs> you know, yeah, there is still, and we have to be honest, there is that chance that some of this stuff is permanent, even though most, most, most studies have shown that you do heal over time. It just can take a really long time, but we don't know that a hundred percent for sure with, 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 right. with, with, with science, but, but you are healing. I am healing. And it makes sense that we would continue that path <laughs> is what I try to let them know. But I also try to let them know that I am not the same person I was before. I have some limitations now in my life and some difficulties, but I am actually better in many ways because of what I've gone through and what I was forced to learn. Oh, I mean, it's definitely true. I mean, this is this is life changing and I won't I won't ever be the same. I yeah. I definitely have a different perspective on suffering and, you know, you know, every time I, if I, you know, I'm finally just able to experience some joy again and, and just do some normal things like go shopping or, you know, I, oh, I don't I take know. any of that for, for granted anymore. I, I don't either. My, I go to the grocery store probably four or five times a week in the morning and I will, I'll get a, you know, an herbal tea. At, at Starbucks while I'm there and I'll do my little shopping and come home. And it was the, it was the one thing I could keep doing most of the time during my tapering withdrawal. And now I, I, I enjoy it. It's become, I mean, I like to go to the grocery store and right. it, it sounds so small, but that's an amazing thing for me. Right. Now. Right. No, it is. It is. It, it's a different perspective that we have. Yeah. And I, I just, it's almost like awakening from, the dead and it's yes it's been this very weird experience like there's things i didn't do for four years exactly and it's like i'm seeing the world again for the first time like you know i do sewing and crafts and within just the past couple of weeks i felt well enough to to go in there and try to sew something so i sewed my daughter a skirt Uh and but you know i hadn't you know, these, these things were covered with dust. I hadn't touched them in four years. I mean, it's like, like life just stopped in a way. I feel like Rip Van Winkle and I just woke up and now I'm trying to get back to life. And it's, it's and just it's a weird. slow process. Yeah. And we it have is. To take it one step at a time, but, oh, that's, that's amazing. Do you have any, um, 
last question, do we have any words of encouragement for the people who are out there either just learning about their dependence, starting their taper, or even like myself in protracted withdrawal for some months or years? What have you learned that you would like to pass on to, to those people? Sure. So I would say for people that are still in the thick of things, you know, if you're still tapering, definitely go slowly and listen to your body. Uh, there's no one size fits all approach for everybody on the taper. Just mm -hmm. find out works, what works best for you. Um, you're going to have to have a lot of patience. And I'm speaking to myself too, because I'm, I'm still in the middle of the healing process. Um, like, you know, for some of us, this can just be a long process, but you, you have to trust it, um, that things aren't always going to be this bad. Um, and I, you know, I keep holding on to hope that I'm going to continue to get better and better. And, you know, there were times during my paper that I just, it was so bad that I, I couldn't see the future. I just wanted to die. And, you know, I finally gotten to the point on the other side where it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm glad I did this. I'm glad I survived. So just know that, that you're going to get there too. And then, you know, other advice I have is, you know, lots of distraction. Mm -hmm. Um, I distracted myself a lot during the taper. Um, there were times I could do nothing but sit around and watch Netflix, but I know people <laughs> are, are painting those, um, the W bad rocks of kindness. And yes, I think those, those are, are great. Those are really cool. And, um, maybe now that I'm able to do more crafts and things like that, I can participate in that. Um, my last piece of advice would be to find a, a small group of uh, fellow benzo sufferers that can help support you through this, even if it's just online or via, you know, text or phone calls. Um, I ended up actually, I was on the internet forums for a while, but then they got to be too overwhelming for me. So yeah. I just ended up, making friends through the forums and I had maybe like four or five people and we would just, you know, talk or text. That's and, perfect. And, you know, I, you know, we still talk to this day and it's, it just really helped all of us oh, through. Good. Yeah. I've actually, um, have, I've had a couple of people have written into me who have been part of your group and have said how much that has, has really helped them. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a great idea for people to do that is find some friends. You can meet them, a discussion group. You're right. It's a great place to meet them. But then, you, yeah, form your own support group offline and, you know, go with the people that you can trust and can talk to. It can help. You can share your experiences and learn from each other. I think that's a great idea. I love that. Yeah. Well, I just have to say, Dr. Huff, thank you so much for being on our show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. I think this has so much good information for the people out there who are still struggling and are looking for feedback. And um but before I let you go, I want to remind people to please visit BIC's website at benzoinfo.com or their Facebook page at facebook.com slash bzinfocoalition. And also they can email you too. Is that okay? Can, can they find their information on that website? Yes, my email is under my uh, profile um, on the website. Thank you so much. That's great. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, mine too. So, well, we'll sign off now and you have a, have a great day. All right, you too, Dee. All right, bye-bye. And that closes out part two of our interview with Dr. Christy Huff. Thanks so much to Dr. Huff for her time and dedication to raising awareness about benzos. She is a true asset to our community in the best sense of the word. We really appreciate all you do. And before we move on to our moment of peace, please allow just 30 seconds for our disclaimer.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal or professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before you return to the chaos of the real world. The way this works is that I will give a brief introduction, perhaps a suggestion of something to focus on. Then I will play a soft bell which will indicate the start of the one minute. This will be followed by another soft bell which will indicate the end of the one minute. And that will be the end of the episode. Feel free to continue to meditate if you choose. If not, continue on with your day. Please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place where you can close your eyes, relax, and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Today we are going to do a version of visualization meditation. After we get started, I will guide you with some imagery of more positive times and encourage you to experience those feelings and let them permeate throughout your mind and body. So let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. One more time. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. Then let the breath out slowly, relaxing your entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally. I want to help you create an image in your mind of a more healthy you, a more active you, a, a more happy you. Perhaps visualize yourself running on the beach, dancing in the grass with your son or daughter, laughing over drinks with some good friends, or curled up with a good book in a quiet room in front of the glow of a crackling fire. It doesn't matter what image you choose, as long as it is an image of you healthy and happy. Now, 
Let the feelings this image generates permeate throughout your body. Let the warm, soothing emotions fill your mind with joy and remind you that this person is still inside of you and never left you. If your mind wanders, which it will do, just gently bring it back to this image and let the feelings circulate throughout you. Continue to do this for one minute. Next episode is episode 46, and since today's episode was a doubleheader, it will be released in two weeks. Thank you again for joining me today, and please, let me know how we did. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.